Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at what I think is the greatest short story that's ever been written. It's a story about a father who had two sons, and the one son came to him and said, I want my share of the estate, and he broke the father's heart, and he left the home. But the other son, who we'll look at in a couple of weeks' time, he broke the father's heart as well. Because it isn't whether you leave the house or whether you don't leave the house, it's how close you are to the father's heart, which is the most important thing. And all of this is about who God is. God is ultimately who this whole story is about. It isn't about the son, the younger one, or the older one. It's ultimately all about who God is. But we're looking at this younger son over the next couple of weeks, or the last couple of weeks and the next couple of weeks. We're really going for it on him. And in the first week, we looked at the fact that this younger son had what we called an awakening to longing. There must be something more in life than this. And then last week, we looked at his awakening to regret I wish I could start all over again. Um, but he did. And the Bible says he came to his senses. He was in the pigs. He was in with a pig sty. And, and he looked at the pigs and he thought, not only am I in the, with the pigs, but your life looks better than my life. And the Bible says he came to his senses. He had regret. He got up and he went home to his father. But on his way home, he carries with him a shadow that always follows us home. And you and I have to deal with this shadow as well. Many of you here in this room and maybe watching or listening, you're already a Christian and you've had this relationship of coming home, but there's still a shadow that you and I have got to deal with. Maybe for some of you this morning, you're not yet a Christian. You don't know whether you believe in God. I am going to give you an opportunity this morning to make a decision to come home to God. You're going to have to deal with the shadow as well. What is the shadow that followed him home? Well, I want you to suggest that last week when we said this guy had regret, we looked last week at the difference between regret and repentance. And regret is feeling sorry, but repentance is changing your mind and changing your actions and changing your direction. I want to suggest he's gone from regret. He's not fully repentant yet, even as he comes home. And the reason I say that is because he's still grappling with the shadow. And the shadow is this, I don't deserve the Father's love. I don't deserve to be loved unconditionally by God because of what I have done. Look, Luke 15, I will set out, he said, and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. In other words, I'll come home, but not as your son, as your servant or as your slave. That's the shadow that followed him home. It highlights the fact that for many of us, Even getting to grips with God loving us unconditionally, grace is too big for us to get our heads around. I think some of this, we have misconceptions about God. Maybe you're here in this room or you're watching or listening and you've got misconceptions about God. You know, to some people, God is like what I call the cosmic skinhead. Do you know what I mean? The one who's like splatting on the ants all the time. And you know, that's your view of God or the kind of sober fanatic You know, the God who's so serious all the time, He wants to stop you doing anything that's fun. Or maybe the the conception of God you got is that God is the old man in the sky with the hearing aid. Slightly sentimental um, and slightly maybe even impotent granddad, if I can say that to some of you granddads out there. I'm not saying that to you at all. But that's the kind of view that we have about God. Interesting, I'm reading a book at the moment. Um, I'm reading lots of books at the moment, but I'm reading one that was written by, (laughs) such an exciting life I lead, Uh, but written by the the head of the Genome Project. So he's a world famous scientist 
And he's talking about the existence of God and science and faith. And it's really fascinating. He said in 1917, many of the world's leading scientists were asked if they had a belief in God. 40% of them did. Nearly 100 years later, the world's leading scientists were asked, do you have a belief in God? Nearly 40% of them still do. And if you ever have the idea that to have a belief in God means you need to throw away your brains, you are mistaken. That's a misconception. Some of the brightest people on planet Earth have a passionate belief in God. They are not mutually exclusive. Science explains why, but faith explains, science explains how, but faith explains why. And it's so, so important. And if that's your conception about God, you've got the wrong idea of who God is. But for some of us, the shadow isn't our misconception about God, it's our misconception about the Father. Because we've all had experiences of Father. I am so grateful that I had an amazing Father while He was with us on the earth. But for many of us, maybe even this morning, maybe your dad was distant or passive. Maybe the authoritarian Father, you know that when you got the seven A's, kind of looked at what was wrong with the one B that you got. Maybe that. Maybe an abusive Father. Maybe an absent Father. And the idea of coming home to God, the Father, We've got all kinds of understandings. What does that look like? What will that be like? Who's God? Who's the Father? Don't understand all that. The thought of coming home, having done something which broke the Father's heart, fills all of us with a great sense of dread. And then, to make it even more dramatic, we have Kazaza. Don't we? You all look at me like I'm totally gone out. I have looked at this verse, this story, so many times. In 20 odd years of preaching, I've preached on this passage more than any other times. I didn't know anything about Kazaza until I researched it again for this time. And I'm so excited to share these thoughts with you this morning. Kazaza is an ancient ritual, literally means the cutting off. Sounds really painful, doesn't it? It literally means the cutting off. And what would happen is that when a Jewish man, like this young boy, leaves the village, and goes to the Gentile lands, okay? The Jews are very, very exclusive. And so you've gone to the Gentile lands, it doesn't matter where you've gone, we don't care what the country is, it's Gentile, it's not Jewish. And you've gone and you've wasted the Father's money. When you come home, what is gonna happen is that you will be greeted by a hostile crowd of the whole village. And they'll be carrying these things, they'll be carrying clay pots. And in the clay pots, there'll be lots of different things. And what they're gonna do is they're gonna meet you at the city gates, or the town village gates, and the elders are gonna come and the crowd are gonna come and gather around you. And they're literally gonna smash the clay pots at your feet. Because they're saying to you, not only have you broken your dad's heart, but you now have ripped yourself away from the whole community and from the whole faith. And it's called Kazaza. And when you come home, you are going to have this symbolic ritual that says you are no longer welcome. You are cut off. Literally, you are ripped away. A rabbi said, slander by the whole town is a terror worse than death. When I read into this, I've discovered other things. According to the ritual of Kazaza, the father is not allowed to leave his house. He has to be emotionally disconnected from what is happening. The mother is allowed to come and she may plead for mercy. Remember, justice, mercy and grace. She may plead for mercy for her son. And there may be a slim chance that the the young son could kind of um, work the debt off. But he can't do it if they break the jar. Break the jar, break his heart. Now, I can't prove this, okay, from the Bible, but I know that this happened. What if, what if the father who keeps the light on every night, who watches out for his kid every single night, what if one day 
Okay, every morning, every night, he's watching out. What if one day he looks out and he sees a crowd gathering in the village and some of them are carrying clay pots and he knows Kazaza is about to happen. And then in the distance, maybe he sees the speck of someone getting closer and closer. It's my son. And what the dad does, even though he's not allowed to do it under the ritual, what he does is he breaks all the rules because he says, I've got to get to my son before they break the jar because they break the jar, they break his heart. And it's finished forever. And so here comes this amazing, amazing scene. And the phrase I've put is, the returning man meets the running man. The returning man meets the running man. Listen to this. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. You see, we were going to have the ritual of Kazaza, but instead we're going to have this massive celebration and party. Isn't that amazing? For this son of mine was dead and is alive. Again, he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I don't know about you, but I think this is exciting, don't you? That's amazing. That's what should have happened. What should have happened was Kazaza. What actually happened was an incredible party. This is how God loves us. This is all about God's love for you and for me. Last week, I introduced this uh, quote from a guy called Bill Johnson. His goodness is above our ability to comprehend, but not above our ability to experience. And as I've looked at this more, I've just been, my breath has been taken away again. Lee was talking about the breath in our lungs, by just how much God loves me. It's above my ability to comprehend, but it's not above my ability to experience. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And I think this picture of the man running is God running towards us. And that's Jesus. God runs to us in Jesus. And Jesus shows us what God is like. What does love do? Let me explain. Love is not a feeling. Okay, yes it is. There is a feeling. But love is much more powerful than a feeling. Let me break this down. You see, what does love do? Love runs. Love runs. So, uh, one an ancient writer said, a man's manner of walking tells you what he is. A man's manner of walking tells you what he is. Powerful men don't run. You don't see powerful men or women run. You don't see the queen, bless her, running to try and catch up with the carriage on the trooping of the collar day. It doesn't happen. You don't see prime ministers or presidents or kings running. This man would not have run, but he did run because that's what love does. Slow-paced walking is a sign of dignity and respect in this culture. In the Arabic translation of this story, they omit the picture of the running father because it was too shocking for the audience. And because he was wearing these kind of long robes, he would have gathered up his skirt, as they called it, the tassels of his skirt, and he would have tucked them into his belt. So he lost all his dignity. And he would do all of that because of his son who's coming home. Love runs. And then, and then when he gets there, love cries. What causes you to cry these days? I tell you, I have to be honest. I, I look at myself and I could weep at what makes me weep these days. Because the kind of things that upset me, I think, why are you getting so upset about that? When that should make you cry, not that. Love cries when it sees his son coming home. And then love embraces, love hugs. This father loses all respect, self-respect and all dignity because his son has come home. 
Love runs, love cries, love embraces, love kisses. In this culture, kissing signifies forgiveness, peace, acceptance, and love. And then love welcomes as the son begins to say, I'm gonna earn it, dad, I'm gonna work it off. The son says, father says, shut up, you're coming home. And just opens the door and then love parties. The Kazaza ritual is canceled and in its place, a generous celebration, a party. You know, God gets so excited about us that sometimes he dances. And God gets so sad about us that sometimes he cries. This is our God. Guys, this is our God. Hello. This is our God. He loves us so much that he would break all of those conventions and all of those rituals and all of those rules to get to us. At what point in the whole story did the father love the son the most? Was it when the son said, give me the money? Was it at that point? Was it when he let him go? Was it when he watched and waited for him? Or was it when he saw him and he saw Kazaza happening and he ran through the crowd to get to his son? Or was it when he embraced him or he kissed him or he welcomed him? Was it when he gave him the robe and the ring and the sandals? Was it when he uh, um, killed the fatty calf? At what point did he love him the most? Yes. Every single point. That's love. It does all of those things. That's the extent of God's love for us. A guy called Brennan Manning, not Bernard Manning, that's a whole different thing. Some of you older people know who I'm talking about. Brendan Manning, he said this, if we take all the goodness, wisdom and compassion of the best mothers and fathers who've ever lived, they would only be a faint shadow of the love and mercy in the heart of the redeeming God. This is our God. This is our God. So that's our God. So what about us? What about you and me? What difference does that make to you and me? When we return home, we have to deal with the shadow we have to deal with the shadow. And the awakening that we need is the awakening to the realisation, God loves me deeply after all. God loves me deeply after all. I don't know whether you believe in God or not this morning, but I want you to know God believes in you. And God loves you passionately. And God's design and desire and dream is that you would come home into a relationship with Him. And if you know Him, he still has the same desire and design and dream that you would be in a living relationship with him. Some years ago, several years ago, and if you were the one that bought me this, please do not be offended, okay? Somebody bought me this book, okay, for Christmas. He loves me with a picture of a dad and his little baby and a daisy pet or flower on the cover. When I opened it on Christmas Day, I went, <coughs> thought I ain't reading that. That was my honest reaction. It is the best book I have ever read on the subject of God loving us. I have read it cover to cover at least four or five times. I've studied it. I've preached on it. It is amazing. In the notes, any books that I'm quoting, I'm putting the titles. This is by Wayne Jacobson. It's in your notes. And the essence of this story is this picture because he talks about daisy petal Christianity. Some of you remember that old thing if you're a certain age. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me, he loves me. That whole picking, and the idea is that when something good happens, we think God loves us. When something bad happens, we think he mustn't love us. So um, I got the job I went for, God obviously loves me. I didn't get the job I went for, God doesn't love me. I've got some money at the moment, so God must love me. I haven't got any money at the moment, so God couldn't love me. I've got a partner, partner's a nightmare. Oh no, I haven't got a partner. Yeah, all this kind of thing. I, I was healed physically, God must love me. I'm still waiting to be healed physically. Maybe God doesn't love me. For us, you know, we've got two kids that we love to death. 
You know, and our, our second one, when he was born, Simeon, God loves me, what a beautiful baby. Two years later, when he's diagnosed with autism, learning disability, ADHD, and he's going to be in residential care for all of his life, does that mean God doesn't love us any more, any less than he did when we first received him? Not at all. Not at all. And I think you and I have to understand that God's love isn't, is the basis of it isn't on what we get, it's on who he is. God loves us deeply no matter what is going on in life. And I think many of us, we live life less loved. We live life less loved. When we worry that God will ask us something horrible of us, we live less loved. When we sin, when we indulge in sin and we know it's not God's best for us, we live less loved. When we give in to the choking grip of anxiety, we live less loved. And in the book, he talks about the the tyranny of the favour line, this kind of imaginary, invisible line that everybody has. And it's like, if you don't match that line, you don't kind of measure up. And and parents have it for their kids, and teachers have it for us, and our partners have it for for each other, and we think God has it as well. Listen, the only favour line God ever has is this one. And it's nothing to do with you. It's all to do with Him. And on that cross, God took all my shame, and all my stuff, and all my junk. He took all that kazaza stuff, if you like, onto himself, so that you and I wouldn't have to carry it any longer, which is amazing. I want you to look at this, this painting. I'm not much into, into art myself, but this is a Rembrandt. In fact, it's one of, apparently it's one of the most famous paintings, considered to be one of the finest paintings in the world. It's Rembrandt's portrayal of the prodigal son. And you might not be able to see it from here, but if you look closely at the hands, the hands are different shape and different sizes. That's, they believe that that's to represent the masculine and the feminine side, because even though God is portrayed as father, he's not a gender specific, okay? It's, it's the whole deal. God's not a man anyway, but, but he's portrayed like that. But you've got the masculine and, your, and the feminine. And then here you've got the elder brother and his hands are closed. And we'll look at that in a couple of weeks because under the rituals and under the kind of Jewish custom, the elder brother should have thrown the party for the younger son, but he didn't. We'll come on to that. It's such a powerful, powerful painting. And what I want to do is I want to just share with you what the three things mean to you and to me that the father gave to the son when he came home. Here's number one. He gave him the robe, which is a symbol of identity. And it wasn't any robe. It wasn't the old robe at the back of the wardrobe. It was his own robe. He took his own robe off and gave it to him because he says, this signifies who I am. I am now giving my identity to you. That's who you are. Listen, it isn't just young people who don't know who they are anymore. It's all of us. We've all had our identity stripped. We need to know who we are. We are God's. And if you have a relationship with Him, that's who you are. It's a symbol of identity. Then secondly, He gave him a ring and it was a signet ring, which was a symbol of authority. And, and maybe like you've seen it on old films and things where they dip it in wax and put it on a document. It, it, Father's saying, I've got this authority and I'm passing that authority on to you. Now, it's a transfer of authority. Pharaoh gave one to Joseph. Esther gave one to Mordecai, Old Testament stories. And then thirdly, he gave him sandals, which were a symbol of security. When I go to Bulgaria um, often, as I've been going for years and years, when I go into a friend's house, um, I always have to take my shoes off and they always give me slippers. It's part of the culture. It's a, it's a way of saying you're home now, you belong. But the Jewish custom was slaves and servants never wore shoes. They always went barefoot. And so you see on this picture, the barefoot, that's what I can see this son can imagine. He's coming back, he's barefoot. And, and, and he says, I'm gonna be one of your servants, okay? And I'll work it off for you to, to get to the favour line. 
But then, but then the man says, no, 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 you won't. You'll wear sandals because servants go barefoot. Sons wear sandals. Daughters wear sandals. This is a symbol of security. When you come home and you get that awakening that God loves you deeply after all, everything, everything changes. And, and I think this was so shocking because in the crowd that day, when Jesus is telling the story, there were two groups of people. There were the tax collectors and sinners normal people like us. Then there were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. This was so shocking to them because this story breaks all of the convention and all of the rule and that's what love does. And you see the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they classified people using adjectives and they said things like this, are they a Jew or a Gentile? Clean, unclean, male, female, free, slave, in or out. And they classified people using these adjectives of course, we don't do that, do we? Do we? Of course we do. We use our own set of adjectives, don't we? Male, female, black, white, gay, straight, Villa Albion. Well, that's the big one, wasn't it? Brexit, remain. We use our own adjectives. Jesus redefines the adjectives. And he says the only adjectives that matter are these. Listen. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. That's it. The only question you need to answer today is this. Dead or alive? Lost or found? When you return home to God, you pass from being dead to being alive spiritually and you go from being lost to being found. That's incredible, isn't it? And I want to say to us as a church this morning, we're excited about what God's doing at the moment. We are now a church in three locations. So we're up at Brickhouse in Rowley Regis. That's going on now, going on well in Hagley this afternoon, which is fantastic. Looking at what God's doing in the youth, you know, seeing young people make commitments on Friday, brilliant. Got two Alpha courses running. It isn't too late. Month, tomorrow night, Halzo in here at 7.30. It's week one for Alpha in Halzo in. On Wednesday in Hagley at West One, it's week two at 7.30. You can come along to that. But as we're doing all these different things, we're giving opportunities for people who don't know God to find Him. Can I just say, this is the most important thing a church ever does. And we must never, ever take our eyes off that. Amen? We must always be a church with doors open and hearts open for those who don't know God to help them find a way back to God and as well as that, we must be careful as a church that we don't substitute things for him. Substitute things for our relationship with him. Let me say, the church can be a substitute for the Father if we're not careful. The Bible can be a substitute for the Father if we're not careful. The kingdom can be a substitute for the King. Because we can be so caught up in doing things for God that we don't do things with God and in relationship with him. So I want to ask you a question this morning. How do you, how do I, how do we get this awakening to love? How do we get this realisation that God loves us deeply after all? For the first time or maybe for the hundred and first time. His goodness is above our ability to comprehend. But it's not above our ability to experience. And you might say, yeah, but I don't feel it. I don't feel anything. Or can I just say, feelings are important, but feelings aren't the same as faith. This is where the Holy Spirit comes in. There's a great verse in Romans 8, two verses. It says, The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves 
so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him you cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. In, in the 80s, uh, I went along as a, as a uh, late teenager to uh, Spring Harvest, which is a big Christian event. And I remember listening to some teaching there on Romans chapter 8 from a guy called R.T. Kendall. I know it impacted my whole family at the time, uh, my father especially, but it really impacted me to realise that he has adopted me, that God has adopted me as a son. And it's a work of the Spirit and a growing work of the Spirit to realise and to live in the reality of that. But let me give you some steps to find an awakening to God for the first time or for the 101st time. Listen, stop running away and start running home. Stop trying to earn it and start receiving it. Stop trying to work it all out and just believe it. It is as simple as that. Right at the start of Luke 15, when Jesus starts telling the stories and he tells a story about a lost coin and about a lost sheep and about a lost son. And he says this in Luke 15 verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. In other words, when one person finds their way back to God, the Bible says, there will be a cosmic party in heaven. Listen, don't move. When one person finds their way back to God, there will be a party in heaven. Isn't that exciting? Conservative, conservative estimates believe that every single day, 100,000 people find their way home to God on planet Earth. That's more than one every second. So while you're listening to me now, one party, 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 party. They're shattered. The angels are absolutely shattered. Get in the jolly cake out. Do you know what I mean? Get in the whole banner with the name on. We've only got a second. Every second in heaven, there is a party because one person has come home. Listen, today, right now, this second, it could be you. It could be you. Let's pray. I want to invite the band to come back. I want to give you an opportunity this morning. Here in this place, and if you're watching as well, or if you're listening somewhere, and I know people are watching and listening, and God bless you for tuning in and for listening. And you know, right however where you are, I don't care where you are, how far away you are geographically, or how far away you feel spiritually, this could be your mind. I want to ask people not to move in the next couple of moments, if you could just be kind, just for a couple of minutes. And listen, while everyone's got their eyes closed, if there's anyone here, and you have never come home to God. You've never given God your life. You've never said, hey, I want to know you. God, I want a relationship with you. You can begin that journey right now. This moment, this second, you could be one of those 100,000 people across the planet who are going to do it today. That would be amazing. So while we've got our eyes closed, if there's anyone here this morning, you want to say, that's me. I want to come home. I want to start that journey home. You've not done it before. This is for the very first time. I want to give you an opportunity. So if that's you, I want you just to pop your hand up so that you know you've responded and I'd love to pray for you this morning. Is there anyone this morning? Fantastic. So for the rest of us, we know God, but I know and I'm sensing this more and more as the day's going on, 
that for many of us, we're struggling to experience His love right now. We're struggling to know that running, embracing, kissing, welcoming love of God. Some of you, you're going through tough times in your family, in your marriage, with your health, with your finances. And for you right now, you need to know that God is with you. What I'm going to do is we're going to sing worship in a moment and I'm going to invite you to receive prayer, but not in the prayer room over there. We will do that at the end. But I want to invite you to come and to receive prayer right here in the front. Not because there's anything special or magical about the front, but just because I sense that actually for some of us, we need to step out of where we are, step out of our seat and say, God, I need to experience you again. So can we stand? Can we stand? I want to invite you as we sing this song, that if that's you this morning and we had the privilege of praying for people at the first service and we'd love to pray for you as well, that maybe you know you're going through a tough time right now. You just need to know that God is with you. This isn't because He loves you any less, okay? But you need to know that God is with you in the midst of this, okay? So as we sing, if that's you, then I want to invite you to come, stand here. Someone will just come and pray with you. Nothing freaky or weird is going to happen. We're not going to ask you lots of questions. In fact, we're not going to ask you anything. We're just going to pray for you, okay? That you will know who you are, that you will know God's love for you. And as we sing this song, let's let the Holy Spirit confirm the truth of this song. It says, we're no longer slaves, but we are children of God. We were lost, but now we're found. We were dead, but now we're alive. Isn't that amazing? And as you sing this, and if any of you want to, please, we invite you to come and we'd love to pray for you this morning. Bless you.